It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. China's Belt and Road Initiative has put railways, ports, and pipelines all over from the Indian Ocean to South America. We examine how China is dealing with being a global infrastructure lender, especially as so many countries are struggling to pay up. And Izzy Miyake knew from a young age that he wanted to be a fashion designer. Our obituaries editor looks back on his journey to becoming one, all the while keeping a troubling secret about his childhood. First up, though. For five months, a fragile truce had held in Ethiopia. The agreement promised relief for millions facing starvation in Tigray, home to the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, that's been facing off against the government for nearly two years. That ceasefire, though, has collapsed. Telling us that the humanitarian situation in northern Ethiopia continues to be alarming. There are unconfirmed reports of displacements in frontline areas in Amhara and the Afar regions. Deliveries of humanitarian supplies by road into Tigray have been suspended since last week on August 20th. Aid organizations are struggling to help as the violence ramps back up. Information is hard to come by, and much of it is propaganda. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has firm control of the media. Several foreign journalists, including our correspondent, have been expelled or barred from the country. The fight in Tigray isn't the only conflict that's putting serious stress on Ethiopia's union of ethnic regions. Far from it. But now that hostilities have resumed, a humanitarian disaster there will only get worse. Early on the morning of August the 24th, the five-month-long truce broke down with fighting reported near the Amhara town of Kobo on Tigray's southern border. Neither side agrees on who shot first. They both blame the other. Tom Gardner is our Horn of Africa correspondent. It's a standard story, really, in this war of bloodshed and misinformation. It's reminiscent of the very start of the war itself back in November 2020. But no matter who rekindled the violence this time, their fighting has escalated since then. How so? What's been going on since then? Well, the last nine days have seen fierce fighting around the border between Tigray and the Amhara region, particularly around this town of Kobo. The Tigrayan forces have been advancing south. There's also been airstrikes in Tigray. Ethiopian Air Force has hit the Tigrayan capital, Mekele, at least twice in the last week, killing four people, including two children in one case. The TPLF then gathered momentum and they claim to have won decisive victories over government forces. In 
in the last couple of days, they've been parading videos of large numbers of captured tanks and troops, including an Ethiopian commander yesterday. Also yesterday, the TPLF said that Ethiopian government forces had launched a joint offensive on Tigray from the north, that is from neighboring Eritrea, which is allied with the Ethiopian government in this war. I'm simultaneously hearing credible reports that Tigrayan forces who'd been amassed across the border in Sudan have also engaged now. That indicates that a battle for control of disputed territory in western Tigray may now be underway. So that's a major development and could draw Sudan into the war as well. So it sounds as if the peace has broken down on a bunch of fronts. Do we know why that is? So the stated aim of this so-called humanitarian truce agreed in March was to provide food and basic medical provisions for Tigrayans who are in dire need of both. The region has been under effective blockade for more than a year now. And then that would lay the grounds for political negotiations and a formal ceasefire. However, throughout this period, Addis Ababa, the capital, largely kept the blockade of essential services in place. Yes, more food, medicine and fertilizers entered Tigray, but there were still tight restrictions on fuel and cash. That meant little aid reached the neediest. And at the same time, there's no banking, telecoms, electricity in Tigray. That's all switched off. So the TPLF accused Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister, of reneging on his commitments to lift this blockade and repeatedly warned in the past few weeks that they would re-engage in conflict if he didn't do so. It also demanded the return of these disputed territories in western Tigray, The Ethiopian government said it was ready to talk anytime, anywhere, but effectively dismissed these Tigrayan demands. They said they were unacceptable preconditions. So we had reached an impasse and all it needed was a spark. And one way or another, that spark was provided. What do things look like for the government now? The TPLF is back on the attack. Government forces, resources are stretched. But the Tigrayans are just one problem facing the government at the moment. There are rebellions around the west and the south of Ethiopia, all of which threatened to fragment the country. Of particular concern is the Oromo Liberation Army, the OLA, which is a rebel group fighting for self-determination of Oromos, Ethiopia's largest ethnic group, which last year agreed a military alliance with the TPLF against the federal government. Earlier this year, the government launched an offensive against the OLA. We saw thousands of federal troops supported from the air by drone strikes, by militias, on a scale almost comparable to what we'd seen in the north. And it reached within 100 kilometers of Addis Ababa at one point. So Abiy is very much fighting on at least two fronts. And clearly that fighting on the TPLF front has not been going well. Is there a route back to a broader peace? The peace talks which were supposed to be imminent, taking place last month, I think are now uncertain at best. Both the government and the TPLF say ultimately they do want to talk. The TPLF says... Their aim is simply to force the government to the negotiating table. The government, however, still calls both the TPLF and the OLA terrorists and has stepped up this rhetoric against the TPLF in the past few days. It also accuses the OLA of conniving with al-Shabaab, a jihadist group linked to al-Qaeda that ravages Somalia next door. That link between the two groups is unproven. But al-Shabaab would clearly be more than happy to capitalise on stretched government forces. And in fact, I should say, there was a recent foray by al-Shabaab into Ethiopian territory, the largest and most significant since that group was established 15 years ago. The government says it has crushed it, but the fact is that threat remains. 
And Abiy may find himself fighting on, well, at least three fronts if al-Shabaab steps up attacks. So when we talked to you at the beginning of this conflict, Tom, the worry was it could become civil war, then it did. The worry once it became a civil war was that the country could come apart. And now that seems to be happening. It just seems to be coming apart of the seams. Yes, Jason, Abiy has played down these fears of Ethiopia's fragmentation. He recently reminded top commanders that historically the central government often had little control of the country's periphery and had remained intact. And it's true that these fears are often overblown. But as you say, at each turn, things have gotten worse throughout this conflict. I think the prospects of Tigray remaining part of Ethiopia look as dim as ever. I think the humanitarian disaster in Tigray as well is only going to deepen. The aid operations, which were already limited, are now at a standstill. Tigrayans are starving in large numbers, but elsewhere in the country too, people are desperate. People are fleeing the war in Amhara, for example, as the Tigrayan forces advance. Ethiopians in all parts of the country really are at the mercy of government forces, rebel movements, atrocities against civilians have been reported on all sides. I find it hard to be optimistic at this moment. There was five months where there was a window of opportunity. I wasn't bullish, but I thought there might be a possibility of at least talks. Those hopes have been dashed. And I think the prospects of that peace or negotiation track, I think, have rarely looked more distant. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. China's leader, Xi Jinping, once called it the project of the century. The Belt and Road Initiative was launched in 2013, when it was called One Belt, One Road. It's financed hundreds of infrastructure projects in dozens of developing countries. At one point, the country was investing, or lending, up to $150 billion a year, in Asia, in Africa, in Eastern Europe. At a Belt and Road Summit five years ago, President Xi talked up the project's unrelenting progress. But a lot has happened since then, and a lot of the loans on China's books are looking shaky. So it's very hard to quantify the Belt and Road in absolute terms. There are lots of numbers bandied around about the number of projects, the value of those projects. The Chinese statistics are intentionally vague. Jeremy Page is our Asia diplomatic editor. But what is clear is that Beijing has lent billions of dollars over the last decade for infrastructure projects that include railways, ports, roads, pipelines in Africa, Asia, even as far afield as Latin America. And the goal was to create a new trade and transport 
infrastructure network between China and the rest of the world. They like to call it a sort of new Silk Road. But a lot of those projects started to run into trouble a few years back. Recipient countries started to have problems paying back the loans. So China is now sort of scaling back Belt and Road, but you're still left with a number of countries around the world facing very severe debt problems, a lot of which are linked to the Belt and Road scheme. So why is it that so many countries are struggling with their Belt and Road Initiative debt? Well, a lot of these countries were already struggling three, four, five years ago, basically because the projects weren't particularly well planned. A lot of them weren't commercially viable. And so it became difficult just to repay those loans, nor were they having the desired effect on economic growth. They weren't boosting trade or GDP in the way that they were supposed to. Then, of course, you had uh, COVID-19, the pandemic, which hit economic growth and trade in a lot of those countries and in China. And then on top of that, you've got inflation and the war in Ukraine, which have really exacerbated those problems for many of those countries. So Pakistan, for example, was probably the biggest recipient of China's Belt and Road loans, but it was already running into trouble a few years back as those projects weren't working out quite as they anticipated. It's now in the midst of an IMF bailout. Zambia, one of the biggest recipients of Chinese loans in Africa, has also just got an IMF bailout. Ethiopia might be on the same path in Asia. Cambodia, Laos might also follow along that route. But probably the place where a lot of these issues come together most is Sri Lanka, which is in the midst of a really severe debt crisis. And we've talked on the show about Sri Lanka's debt problems. How does the Belt and Road lending fit into that? So most economists seem to agree that the Belt and Road loans to Sri Lanka were not the cause of the country's debt problems, at least not alone, but they may well have contributed to it. And then later on, China's sort of emergency loans to Sri Lanka might have played a role as well. Essentially what happened, China did lend Sri Lanka a bunch of money for several large infrastructure projects, some of which were blatant white elephants. There's an international airport that was built down in the south of the country, which to this day has virtually no traffic at all. There's a big port that was built nearby that also has not fulfilled its expectations. And in fact, Sri Lankan government had to grant a 99-year lease for that port to a Chinese company in order to help pay off its debt. But then what happened as Sri Lanka started to face problems repaying some of these loans, as these projects started to falter, that then combined with other factors, including some bad decisions by the government where it decided to cut taxes. And then, of course, you had the pandemic, which hit tourism. Then as Sri Lanka was facing all of that, China stepped in to offer a whole bunch of emergency lending, which stopped the government from going to the IMF at an earlier date and perhaps confronting the crisis back in 2020 or 2021. But how is China as a lender any different from any of the other institutions or countries that are making loans, some of which go bad? What distinguishes China from a lot of other lenders is a lack of transparency. It doesn't really publish much in the way of official data on its own lending to other countries. Another characteristic is a lack of risk management. So a lot of the projects that China lends money for are not particularly commercially viable. And the other thing is that when a lot of these countries face debt problems, China has been quite resistant to working with the Paris Club, which is a group of 22 mostly Western creditor countries. And that's because the Paris Club works on the basis of information sharing amongst its members and also has close connections with the IMF and the World Bank, which are agencies in which the United States has a lot of influence. It's also very likely that there are many more kind of hidden problems which are connected to China 
and uh, some economists at the World Bank and elsewhere who've estimated that as much as half of China's lending abroad is actually unreported. That said, there are now signs that China's slowly changing its position because these debt problems, especially in the developing world, are getting so acute and it's becoming clear that China cannot deal with them on its own. What do you mean by changing its position? So there are a few things. One of the first signs came in May 2020, when the G20 established something called the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, under which official bilateral creditors agreed to temporarily suspend interest and principal payments for any of the world's 73 poorest countries. China supported that and later said that it had deferred more than $2 billion in payments from those countries. And then later on in 2020, you had something called the Common Framework Agreement between the G20 and the Paris Club. And that was an agreement to cooperate debt restructuring for poor countries. And China also supported that. It didn't all go smoothly to begin with. There was still a lot of disagreement between China and other countries in the Paris Club. But the first deal under that new Common Framework happened in July of this year, when official creditors, including China, agreed to provide debt relief to Zambia. And that agreement then unlocked a big IMF bailout. So it's sort of being forced to coordinate to a greater extent with other lenders. And so these changes that are happening with China as a creditor, what does that tell you about how things might change with the Belt and Road Initiative itself? Well, China was already scaling back the Belt and Road Initiative. It talks these days a lot more about something called the Global Development Initiative. It wants to focus on a smaller number of higher quality projects, a particular focus on climate change. It's becoming more interested in partnering with Western countries and with international organizations on those projects to try and avoid some of the problems it's faced with Belt and Road. And I think it's going to be a lot more careful about how it lends money. It's not clear that the crisis has really prompted a wholesale rethink of how it approaches the debt relief issue. But there are some encouraging signs and what we've seen over the last couple of years with the deal on Zambia. If we get a deal on Sri Lanka as well, that will be a very encouraging sign for a lot of other developing countries which are struggling with debt problems. Jeremy, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Sometime in 2016, an elderly woman sent Isemiyake a piece of washi paper. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. This was a special paper made in Shirashi in northern Japan. It was soaked in water and then air-dried. By the time the old woman sent it, she was the only one who was producing it. She sent it to Isemiyaki, hoping he might want to put it in his archive as an interesting bit of material. But as soon as he opened it, he thought, right, what can I make with this? This was always his approach to any new material he found. What could he do with it? What could he make? He eventually became the name behind a brand with 300 stores worldwide, with enormous international acclaim. But he never liked that side of things. He thought of commerce as a great turning wheel, and he was just a little cog in it, a little cog of creativity. He would always leave the business of running Isemiyaki, the brand, to other people, to well-trained deputies, while he and his creative team would like to go out, 
visit villages and far-flung places, mostly in Japan, but elsewhere as well, to find new materials and think what they could do with them, sit down with the makers and the craftsmen, and chat over a lot of tea. He'd had quite a struggle to get to this point, because he wanted to be a designer as soon as he saw the Vogue pictures in his sister's fashion magazines. He got very interested in it, but then found that males in Japan were not expected to study fashion. There was nothing available to him. So he went off to France and studied under Givenchy and Delaroche. He always felt that his clothes should be for everybody. Of course, haute couture is normally for the haute bourgeoisie and is very expensive. But when he was in Paris studying with Givenchy, it was also the time of the student riots in 1968. He took the student's side very strongly and he realized that clothes too ought to be democratic. They ought to be for everyone. They should be unisex and they should be a fairly reasonable price, though you could never say that he was cheap. So he came back with this idea that his clothes should be for the whole world. He saw a great future for this democratic sort of fashion. He envisaged people dancing in his clothes and was fascinated particularly by the interaction of body and clothes and didn't consider any of his garments finished until someone started wearing them, making them work. So this concept of fashion as a universal and rather futuristic thing came to him because he was determined always to look optimistically to the future, not to dwell on the past, but to envisage a fashion world that was new. This drive towards the future also had a deep personal cause. He was a child of seven when he witnessed the atomic bomb falling on Hiroshima. That was the city where he was brought up. He was at primary school. He'd just come into class from assembly. And he remembered the bright red light and the dark cloud that soon sent black rain down on everyone. He went home as quickly as he could and there found his mother so badly burned that she died in three years. And he himself, as a result of radiation, contracted osteomyelitis, which gave him a pronounced limp. It was always rather poignant to see at his shows as the models danced and swung so easily in their clothes that he himself was limping about among them. He kept this story very secret until 2009 when he wrote about it in the New York Times. He kept it secret simply because he didn't want to be known as a designer who had survived Hiroshima. But it had had a deep impact on him and perhaps as much as the explosion itself, he was affected by his time when he was trying to be a painter in Hiroshima when the city was slowly rebuilding after the war. When he went to his painting classes day by day, he would cross the peace bridges in Hiroshima, the East Bridge and the West Bridge, which had been designed by Noguchi. The Western one was a bridge of death and departure. 
And there, the handrails designed by Noguchi plunged into the ground like broken stalks of flowers. But the Eastern Bridge was the bridge of living and building. And in this one, the balustrade had flowers that were opening towards the sun and towards hope. This influenced him tremendously in his career. Rather than looking backwards, he would look forward. He would live and build, and above all, he would make things. He would make the most extraordinary clothes. Anne Rowe on Issy Miyake, who's died aged 84. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jat Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners, with extra production help this week from Elna Schutz. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.